listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Whimsical, gestural, capacious. Ann Arbor-based composer and saxophonist Corey Dundee composes music he describes as rhythmic ridiculousness written in a quasi-atonal yet esoterically functional harmonic language. Critics have essentially said as much in far less flowery English, characterizing his sonic aesthetic as trippy dream music, that coming from a casual university acquaintance, and falling down a black rabbit hole from a six-year-old concertgoer in Norfolk, Connecticut. Recently named honorable mention for MTNA's 2018 Distinguished Composer of the Year Award, Corey was also a finalist for the 2018 Cortona Prize, as well as a recipient of Chamber Music America's coveted Classical Commissioning Grant in 2016. He has undertaken an artist residency at the Kimmel Harding Center for the Arts in Nebraska City, and his music has been commissioned by performers and ensembles including saxophonist Timothy McAllister, the Acropolis Reed Quintet, Chamber Music Tulsa, Front Porch, the Michigan Music Teachers Association, and the Taos Chamber Music Group. Well, cool. So uh, let's get started. So, Corey, great to meet you, uh, albeit like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, so we're going to talk about two of your pieces tonight, and the one I wanted to start up with is uh, your saxophone quartet. Uh, the title is The Of My R.N., and with uh, ellipses after after each of those phrases. So let's just start there. <laughs> what is what does the title mean, and what is kind of the story of this piece? Right. So, um, so this piece uh, was actually um, uh, came into uh, existence through a, a grant from Chamber Music America, the Classical Commissioning Grant that they um, have annually, and um, it was actually a really cool um, experience because uh, my quartet, saxophone quartet, Canary Quartet, um, which I play tenor in, um, we applied for the grant to have me as the composer that we commissioned to write the piece. And so we were fortunate enough to receive that. And this is the piece that came out of it. So uh, this piece specifically is a really important piece for me because it's, um, I would say it's, yeah, it's the first piece that I've ever written that has something to do with my personal life or um, Mm -hmm. rather than like, an abstract concept or a fantasy or something like that. Right. And um, specifically, it has to do with um, my struggles with uh, depression mm-hmm. and different um, mental states associated with that. Uh, and um, it was I had actually just been diagnosed with um, uh, major depression about a year before this piece was written. So when I when we submitted the grant proposal um, and I was thinking about an idea for a piece, um, I, I was saying my idea was to take all of these experiences that I've been having and try to find a way to express them through the music, which is um, a little bit different than I've approached writing a piece before. Yeah. So like you say, you're maybe before you were focusing on an, either an abstract concept or maybe something like extra musical or even non-musical or, or something like that. But this this one, you really kind of looked inward. Yeah. 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 And oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah. So I was going to say that um, I, another really interesting thing about this piece is probably it's one of the only pieces where I've written out like a whole sketch of like just conceptually what is happening in the piece 
um, uh, where different um, uh, musical ideas are going to happen. Um, everything was like written out in detail before I actually started putting any notes to it because the, the main point of this piece was to express a certain narrative. Um, and that narrative is like um, a progression through these different um, mental states that I would go through when I have depressive episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of going along or corresponding with that, um, the fact that I was writing this piece for my quartet, um, the, these guys are amazing players. And just having played with them for uh, let's, almost eight years now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when I, when I wrote this for them, we had been together for four or five years. But um, mm-hmm. playing with the same musicians for that long, you get to know a lot about just um, what their personalities are and also just their quirks and different um, strengths and weaknesses that they have specifically on the instruments. Sure. And so I thought this was a really cool opportunity to think individually, okay, what can Steven do? What can Kyle do that like I've never heard anyone else do before? And so right. I thought of all these weird extended techniques that I could then find some way to plug in to this narrative uh, uh, that's expressing like my journey through um, through depression. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about some of the techniques because yeah. <laughs> I, I really want to know about them. But but kind of let's let's stay here for a minute. Um, you said that you know playing with playing with the same people for you know years, you kind of know you learn their quirks or their hidden talents or or the things that they can do. I would imagine, you know that this maybe the same could be said of them knowing you to be able to kind of express the ideas that you're putting into this in a in a meaningful way yeah yeah i think it was um uh yeah i'm thinking about when we premiered this piece because we um uh, Chamber Music America also offered us the opportunity to premiere it at Bryant Park um, during the summer um, Intersect Festival. Mm-hmm. And I had finished writing the piece maybe a month before that. Nice. <laughs> and um, and that was like just the score, like not even not even counting the parts, mm-hmm. right? And so like you know formatting the parts as much as I uh, could and like getting it to um, them just a few weeks before. I remember. I had, uh, it was like when we, we had gotten together maybe four or five days before that performance to like start putting everything together, which is generally, um, uh, generally what we do for performances, yeah. you know, um, cause we've gotten used to that routine of just learning the parts individually coming together, um, and then making things work. Yeah. So, um, in this case, I remember I had, finished formatting my part the night before our first <laughs> rehearsal. So like this was very much a situation in which um we're all sitting here with this piece no one's ever played before. Um and I've never I haven't even like worked through it on my instrument. But mm-hmm. conceptually I know everything that's supposed to be happening, right? Sure. And so um that I feel like that's the only way we were able to actually pull off performing a piece like this um, uh, to begin with, just because a lot of the things that I had written in there, um, they already kind of had an idea of uh, just what I was going for in general. And if there were any uh, kind of clarifications, I, a couple things did come up that I ended up changing in the score just mm-hmm. um, to make clearer so on and so forth. But it's like you, it, it was, 
I that that process would have been a nightmare with any other musicians, and it's not on it's not on the um uh on account of other musicians being poor musicians, but just the the fact that we know each other is really yeah. the glue that held that together. So it was yeah. a very cool experience. Yeah. So the opening of this piece, I mean, <laughs> wow. I've never heard anything quite like this before. And I mean, it, we've already said it's a saxophone quartet, but for the listeners, if you thought that this was you were listening to like violins or something electronic, anything but saxophones, you would not be in error. I mean, they you you coax the sound out of the saxophones. That's that's just amazing. So the piece starts out with the with the kind of uh, teeth on the reed um, technique, and I. I, I'm not a saxophonist. I'm a percussionist. Mm. Um, but I am about to write a saxophone, my first saxophone quartet. So I have a lot of questions for you. Nice. <laughs> nice. So the teeth on the reed thing, I mean, can you can you specify pitch with that? Or is it just kind of you're going to get what you're going to get on the day? Yeah. So um, this is actually one thing that came up in our rehearsals. Um, because so the 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 technique of putting your teeth on the reed and blowing as opposed to forming an embouchure with your lip. Um, what it does is it produces super high partials um, that are usually very unstable, right? So generally you'll just blow and like a certain pitch will come out. Mm -hmm. um, now it is possible with a lot of practice to relatively produce the same pitch consistently. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, uh, it's not something that anyone should expect any saxophonist to really be able to do all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, the, this is, um, this opening section where it's like, you know, a minute or two minutes of just like these really soft, high squeaky, like sounds, um, kind of floating around. I had originally imagined it as, um, almost like, uh, like string harmonics where it's like just a, yeah. a very high yeah. pitch. I mean, you can be determinate with string harmonics, but um, sure. just that, that sound, the very like um, crystalline, like just ephemeral type of shimmering sound. Yeah. Um, but the sound specifically, I did have a, a stable pitch in mind. Now, when we were trying to do that in rehearsal, I realized that wasn't really going to happen just because of the nature of that technique and, you know, us having to do that, technique for so x amount of you know seconds right, right. there's going to be variation in there um so that was something that i um I, I figured it could still it still has the same effect it still gives the same atmosphere if those pitches are um you know if they don't necessarily always come in at the same pitch level but if they're if they still have the same timbre the same um uh, tessitura you know and i think that the the, the opening comes off pretty well even with that variation yeah and the thing was that you know in in listening to the recording and I, you know obviously it probably comes out a little bit a little bit different every time but in listening to the recording that's why i'm asking can you specify pitch because i'm like wow these these really high pitches they fit so well with your harmonic language you know like sometimes i think when you have those effects that give you maybe relative pitch or maybe unpredictable pitch sometimes what you get is just this thing that kind of sticks out a little bit because like 
uh, you're getting major seconds or major thirds between the saxophones doing it. And it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using all like, uh, minor stuff or, or half steps or, or whatever. But that the particular recording you have, everything seems to just gel really, really nicely. And it's, it's, it's a really, really effective, uh, texture and, and technique for, for that opening. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was going to say in, um, you're right. It, the opening does. Um, there is variation every time it is performed. So um, that the particular iteration on the recording that we have here um, is a, a snapshot of a particular yeah. performance of that opening. Um, but generally, uh, the way that just the range in which those um, pitches lie is very like when the overtone series goes up. Right, the, the partials get closer and closer together. So there's more variation yeah. the higher you get um and so that's what allows for um just the the uh it's it won't sound like you always have perfect fifths or major thirds or like you sure. won't always have a consistent type of interval um but sometimes like major thirds will come out and it's like oh a major third interesting right. and then it yeah. goes back to minor seconds or whatever you know so i think that's a cool um uh, i i like the indeterminacy the indeterminacy yeah. of that because the other elements um, of the opening uh, are what really gel all of it together. I yeah, think. yeah, definitely. With that technique, do you have do you have to specify? You're talking about the overtone series, so do you have to specify like a root pitch? Mm. So, um, no. So with teeth on reed, it doesn't actually matter okay. what what your fingers do because the sound is entirely being controlled by your teeth. So right. I just put a um, uh, a triangle note head for just highest pitch possible, but then specified teeth on read. Yeah. Um, and to get even more specific, you know, um, I could put in the score like um, pitch. Um, pitch can be unstable, but does not have to be the same mm. uh, same pitch every time. But you know. Yeah. So let now let's get to one of the other super cool sounds of this piece. It's kind of like a I can't even do it, but it's like a whistling sound. And it's <laughs> I, I it's kind of like I I interpreted it as like that old timey like alien sound that you might see in like old uh like cartoons or or movies. It's like whoop, 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 whoop. Uh -huh. like <laughs> How is that produced on a saxophone? <laughs> right. So here's the, the trick with that is it's not actually produced on the saxophone. Ah, so <laughs> so this right. this technique, whatever it is, I called it, um, what did I call it in the score? I called it demented whistle. Demented <laughs> um, whistle. And so this is something that Kyle, our alto player, it's just a thing that he does, like sometimes, like a funny noise ah, that he makes okay. sometimes. And <laughs> I, I thought, I was, because I'm writing this piece for this quartet, it's like, hey, Kyle, do that funny, like, whistling noise that you do all the time, but do it, like, at this part, you know? So I wrote yeah. in the score um, just, like, uh, some blank note heads and just <laughs> – actually, I put a little squiggly note head yeah. or something, and I said, demented whistle. And, like, Kyle knows what exactly what that is, but <laughs> I, if, I, if anyone else were to play this, I'd be very curious to see what they interpret. That. Yeah, because I, I – <laughs> like, you know, of course, I'm not a saxophonist, but I certainly can't do that. Like, I was, I was thinking about how else could you interpret that, and, like, the closest I could maybe come is, like, you know like the kind of humming and whistling at the same time i don't know but it's super cool what he's doing so yeah i can't even do it i mean i yeah. just like but it sounds like yeah it just it's like sounds so fluid 
Yeah, it's it's so good. <laughs> now, what one more thing I wanted to ask about was uh, the vocal bisbigliando that mm. you have. Okay, this is this is something that like you know you it it, it reminds me of like. Uh, either a trombonist or a trumpet player with a Harmon mute and then just kind of like moving the hand over the mute to create these like uh, this timbral variation, almost like, you know, you're controlling like a filter or something. But how do you how do you make that sound on the on the saxophone? Yeah. So um, there there is some similarity there because um, you are uh, like wiggling your fingers across the keys to produce variations in the pitch that's coming out. So it is similar to having your hand over a trombone mute and, you know, mm-hmm. um, modulating the timbre by moving your hand. Um, the, it, the, the difference here is that we're not actually, with vocal bispigliando, we're not actually producing sound from the reed, vi- reed vibrating. Um, we're actually like humming into the instrument an indeterminate oh, pitch. And so it. it's like you, you hum through the instrument, the, the, um, the, the body will amplify that sound. And then mm-hmm. by just kind of wiggling your fingers in just um, little sparse uh, um, uh, little blips here and there, right? It's like um, subtly that will change the sound. Um, it's not going to change the pitch entirely because you, the right, pitch you're that's... vocalizing is, is supposed to say the same. But then uh, the, the quality of that will have this like fluttering, shimmering um kind of effect yeah because because essentially you are you are humming into a tube and then by changing your fingers you're changing the length of that tube thus changing the overtone uh the overtone possibilities of that tube yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah okay that's man that's so cool i mean i feel like i already know the answer to this uh question the question is, how did you find all of these sounds? But I'm assuming it's as simple as I'm a saxophonist. <laughs> well, yeah. So that uh, it, it, part of it is that I'm a saxophonist. But honestly, more of it, I think, is that I'm just a person that likes to make weird noises in general. Like even yeah. if the saxophone, I'm even not even on the saxophone. And I, I've always yeah. been like that, like from my earliest, you know, memories involve like getting giant TV cardboard like uh <laughs> like pipes and blowing through them yeah. and like you know just banging on random things and like sounds in general are, are fascinate me and music specifically like it's all it's all um intermixed with one another and so um a, a lot of these techniques that one specifically um the vocal bispigliando that's something i just came up with one day like you know it's just playing some stuff and i was like oh what if i like sing through the horn oh what if i just kind of move random figures and like okay that's the thing and then so um i kind of had all of these uh these like this catalog almost of random sounds that i had kind of made up on the instrument and other along with other things i knew um the other quartet members could do and that's what i the um kind of toolbox that i uh drew from to incorporate into the yeah i mean as as a composer i think i have a, a very similar um uh history in in just making weird sounds i mean i was i was a percussionist so you know what does this sound like when you you know you hit it what does it sound like when you hit it with this what does it sound like when you you know all the all that stuff but i actually think that i you know 
I, and tell me if this was your experience too. I actually think that the, one of the best things for a composer who is interested in, uh, you know, non-traditional instrumental sound is boredom. Like you're just sitting there with your instrument and it's like, I really don't want to practice. So what does this do? Yeah. It's a combination of boredom and also just a willingness to have an open mind and just the idea that any, anything can be made musical in the right context. Um, So like a lot of these sounds, you know, some musicians who maybe aren't really into contemporary music might hear that and be like, what is that nonsense? You know, Mm -hmm. but, um, but you have to, (laughs) this is a piece that you have to listen to again in the context of the narrative and just the way that everything progresses. Um, And uh, like, usually the music I write is not uh, super timbrely based like this piece is. Um, There's more harmony and more, um, you know, there's uh, more conventional techniques that I use uh, in other pieces. But this specifically, I think, um, uh, when all of those (laughs) elements are combined, all of the Mm -hmm. weird sounds together, I think the sum is uh, greater than the the parts, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you were you were kind of alluding to this. It really it it does speak to the narrative because you are, you know, by by really focusing and and mixing all of these sounds with with, you know, also just straight up notes, rhythm, traditional saxophone techniques, um, you're presenting uh, kind of a distorted lens for the piece, which I mean, I, I don't, I don't have depression, so you, you can act, you can speak to this, mm-hmm. but I, what I gather and what I imagine is that distortion affects your reality in some way. Is that, does that ring true or? Yeah, very, very much so. And, um, that, it's, that can be seen through this piece in a number of ways and also in the way which I conceived of it, um, because so the narr- narrative is about progressing through these different mental states, um, like apathy, uh, just um, fear, uh, um, feeling that you're, you know, mentally unstable, um, uh, kind of introversion or um, aversion to interaction, social interactions or being mm-hmm. like excessively irritated, uh, being in public, um, self-deprecation and um, just trying to find a way to move past all of these things. Um, and so when I was thinking about, you, go, you know, going back to the, the extended techniques, for example, um, uh, this concept of distortion changing reality, throughout the, this piece, the, the reality that's being experienced changes with those different mental states. And so with the extended techniques, um, when I would think about any one particular technique i would think about how many how many different things can i do with this one technique so the mm-hmm. teeth on read for example um you know there's one iteration where you just blow and it's like whatever pitch comes out it's that but um there's also a uh, um what did i put in the score i put um oh i put like a distort and a squiggly line um mm-hmm. over the teeth on read symbol to indicate you're just like moving your jaw back and forth. So instead of the sound just being like, it then sounds like. Yeah. So it's like, like, there's like gradients of each of these, um, 
each of these techniques that I put in there that I thought about when I'm spacing them throughout the piece, you know, okay, we're, we have mostly this version of this technique here, but then when it happens later on, it's in another, another reality almost. It's like there's this, um, it's like a, a, a negative or um, you see here mm -hmm. the relationship, but you hear that something's different about it too. One of my, one of my favorite moments, I mean, I love the opening. I mean, I just want to, I just want to state that. But one of my other favorite moments of this piece is actually the kind of like very articulate uh, section. It's around like eight minutes and, you know, everyone is tonguing really fast. It's like very dexterous, mm -hmm. I think. And um, yeah, that, that moment, I, I was wondering, did that have a specific uh, mental state associated with it? Because it is kind of, it is uh, quite a departure from what came before and then what ca came after. Yeah, yeah. So it's like um, that. If if I kind of have to explain, or in a uh, in a nutshell, um, the the sound of the piece, we start off with these um, uh, these high squeaky noises uh, representing just apathy, um, and it's very very um, sparse, very kind of open feeling that's just floating it doesn't doesn't seem directional um and these other techniques like the vocal bispoliando um there, there's like jumbled trills and the demented yeah. whistle like these things start gradually coming in and the texture gets thicker and thicker but it's all still just these timbral noises it's not mm -hmm. melody or you know rhythms per se uh, or identifiable rhythms um and so that that's like the beginning by the time we get to the middle of the piece um there are these outbursts that begin to occur um so that uh that really um ambiguous texture uh starts getting punctured by um really articulate gestures and then <laughs> it breaks into this like complete chaos of um uh let's see there there's this um I don't think I had a specific name for this uh, technique, but it's almost like an overtone gliss where you um, you tongue the low note really hard and then just right. gliss up to whatever high note you can and then like yeah. repeatedly hit the high note. And mm -hmm. so um, I put those in like aleatoric boxes um, so that all eventually all four members of the quartet are doing that. So it's like a combination of these puncture, um, punctuated articulations with these random like glisses happening um so this is the part right before what you're um what you were mentioning where it yeah. goes into this really fast uh just like um seemingly straight 16th kind of uh jumping around yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so that that part is um specifically in terms of the musical content um it was inspired by uh, a fred jeffsky piano piece I can't uh -huh. remember specifically which one it was. Um, I'll have to go back and and look up uh, look up what I was listening to at that is time. Is it <laughs> is it just? I mean, there's there's a pretty good shot. It's people united will never be defeated just because it's so long. Yeah, honestly, I think like, that's it. I think that's like funny. it has everything in it. <laughs> yeah, um, but this is uh, this is representative of a building frustration, right? So. Um, the right before we get into this moment of continuous 16th notes there's like this really atonal kind of um duet that happened for a brief few seconds 
after those glisses. Um, and what this I'm thinking, imagining this as is me trying to come up with some kind of melody or something that just doesn't work. Like it just mm-hmm. sounds, it sounds, it's very atonal. I don't usually write atonal music. You know, the rhythms are like jolting and like kind of, you know, it sounds like what, what is happening? Like, uh, it sounds like the first attempt at something that you can't even tell what it's even really yeah. supposed to be. <laughs> right. And so it's like, this happens. And then, um, I get really frustrated with it. So I just go off into these like staccato, um, uh, kind of uh, large interval leaps that are just happening yeah. really fast. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone comes into unison and plays these ascending, uh, this ascending gesture from really low to very, very high, but very specifically high notes. Like, so they're forming chords. Um, and this uh, instance, um, man, I wish I had a, I have the score in front of me. It's that, um, uh, it's at rehearsal 139. I'm not sure what that corresponds to exactly in the um, in the piece, but um, you, uh, I, I feel like you you'll know which part I'm referring to. Yeah, I, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about because I was going to ask you about that spe- this specific <laughs> moment, this kind of like chordal rise from the depths. I mean, was that is it, it seems like this has some sort of symbolic meaning toward the the grander narrative of the piece. Yeah. So. Um, so where, where this happens is uh, w- the, one of the first things I wrote for this piece was a very, very long chord progression. And you hear it in its entirety at the end of the piece um, in just quarter notes, uh, starting very low and ending very high. Um, now, I decided to use that complete progression as like the goal that I'm trying to I'm trying to figure something out. I'm trying to get through all of these different states. I'm trying to find some kind of catharsis or like some kind of um peace with things and Mm -hmm. this chord progression kind of represents that and so through at the very beginning of the piece um there are some low uh what's called subtone um very low notes that are very muffled um and uh you it's they're very very quiet um and what's happening there is the specific pitches are the first few pitches of this um, chord progression however they're not aligned vertically so mm-hmm. it just sounds kind of like these random things happening like something that you're um it's like a far-off dream of that final goal but yes. very very vague very um non-unformed um and so this point that going back to this point um uh at rehearsal 139 where all of a sudden there's all these articulated things and then boom it's a unison and it's just this accelerating um uh, ascending gesture from low to high each note in that run uh vertically is the um part of a chord that's part of the final progression and so when it happens it it happens like it kind of just blurts out there at 139 and it's like me being really frustrated and then all of a sudden like this spark of something happens, but it goes by really fast. And I'm like, okay, what was that? You know, it's like when you mm-hmm. kind of get a, a glimpse of something that um, that you get a hint of it, and then it's then it's gone, and you have to um, either wait for it to come back, or forget it, or write down part of it, or you know, it's like um, 
this is just a point in that development of getting from point A to point B at the very end. And so I just thought of how many different ways can I um, take this chord progression, like, oh, let me take every even chord and smash them together into a long run. Let me take every odd chord. Let me um, mix them up in all different uh, different um, orders and then have them jumping from high loads, high chords to low chords, like indeterminately, um, you know. So it's all just this jumble of that material that is at the end of the piece in very orderly fashion at the end of the piece. It doesn't know what it's doing. It's trying to figure out what it's doing in the middle of the piece here. So that's what, what that kind of represents. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's just a really economic uh, use of material. And it's also very helpful because I think it, it, uh, it solidifies the sound world that you're going for in the entire piece by like, this is, this is my material. I'm going to like jumble it and turn it all which ways, but this is my material. So that when you do get it at the end, you've, you've prepped the audience, you've primed them to hear this as an arrival, you know, I mean, not only, uh, harmonically not only pitch wise not only um in the uh you know in the in the range of the piece but also like rhythmically i mean this is one of the one of the first times other than the you know kind of jumping 16th note rhythms although that's like really you know that's really in your face this is more measured this has like we feel pulse in a way that we don't necessarily feel a consistent pulse with the 16th notes before, but like you've, you've set everything up so that this, this feels like this is where we were supposed to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think that's, it's the, um, that's great. The, uh, the fact that it's entirely rhythmic unison from that point, um, from rehearsal 139, because when we have the jumping, um, uh, the jumping, um, 16th, uh, incessant stream of 16th notes right mm -hmm. before that it's kind of hocketing or it's kind of um, yeah. overlapping a little bit so it's it sounds um pointillistic in a way but relatively more together than ev everything that had been happening before right. um but when we get to this moment where the little bursts of the chord progression um come out in ascending like scalar form if you will um that's entirely rhythmic unison and that's the first time you get all four members of the quartet playing something in unison and so i wanted that to the fact that i'm using that specific material there um is is what uh, brings attention to it the fact that it's the rhythmic unison yeah well let's uh let's listen to it so uh this is your quartet this is the canary quartet mm -hmm. um who are the who are the members of the of the quartet that we're going to hear yeah so um on soprano saxophone we have um bob eason um, he just finished his uh, doctorate uh, from the uh, Indiana University. Um, uh, we've got Kyle Baldwin on alto saxophone. Um, he lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and then we have uh, the famous Stephen Banks on baritone. Uh, he teaches that he's the professor of saxophone at Ithaca College um, and um, very, very close friend of mine. We're both from North Carolina, actually. Oh, all <laughs> um, right. And then I play tenor in the group. So um this is Canary Quartet. And really, uh, you, you had asked me one thing about the title of the piece. Um, I was just about to ask yeah. you about it again. <laughs> I just remembered that. So um, the, the of by RN. So um, it's referring to a full phrase that is from 
a popular children's cartoon is what I write in the program notes, but that cartoon is SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, I, I sleuthed it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the full, the full phrase is the inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. And the reason that I um, have the title as the way, I, the way that it is, eliminating those key words of the phrase, is that when I have depressive episodes, I'll find that the thoughts that I have are kind of, they're, they're stuttered and there's things missing from them. It's almost like a like mental fragmented. Block. And so I'll be trying to think of a sentence that I want to say and the words just aren't coming to me. So, um, uh, you know, there's, got, there's some irony in the fact that I wanted to take this quote from such a lighthearted, you know, fun mm -hmm. show. It's, SpongeBob is one of my favorite shows ever, <laughs> you know. Um, but the, the meaning of that phrase and its reality is what the piece is about like my depression like i'm not sure why my brain is are do is doing all of these yeah. things but um you know the, the title itself is a, a double layer um on top of that by taking out those key words it's lit a literal representation of something i experienced during a depressive episode yeah so this is the of my rn for saxophone quartet
Greetings all. My name is Andrew Martin Smith. I'm a co-owner of Adjective New Music LLC and a proud member of the Adjective Composers Collective. I hope that you're enjoying this week's episode of Lexical Tones. If you like what you hear, please feel free to check out the previous seasons of this podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Adjective New Music website, where we explore the wonderfully diverse world of individual creative musicians and the art of contemporary music making in the 21st century. Before returning to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Andrea Rankenmeyer, performed by the Linfield Concert Choir with Dr. Anna Song conducting. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this brief excerpt of Andrea Rankenmeyer's When Justice Reigns. Mm-hmm. 
So the other piece we're going to talk about is a relatively uh, recent, uh, more recent piece of yours. It's called Remnants, and it's for violin, bassoon, piano, and percussion. Both the pianist and the percussionist also have uh, MIDI controllers. So, I mean, how did how did this piece come about? Like, how, where did where did this instrumentation come from, and 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 why the why the uh, the electronic stuff that was in it too? Yeah. Um- so this piece that was a lot, there, that was a lot of questions. No, Sorry. no, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, this piece, uh, it is a rather odd instrumentation. Um, but there is a new music uh, ensemble that recently formed at University of Michigan called Front Porch, and that's their in- instrumentation: um, violin, bassoon, piano, percussion, and three out of the four of them uh, are uh, composition. Uh, majors, or excuse me, two out of the four are composition majors at Michigan, and then um, the other two are performance majors. Mm-hmm. But they're all we're all like friends, so there we've mm-hmm. um, the past three years that I've been here, I've known them very closely. And when they formed this ensemble, um, they just have they've had this mission of commissioning as many works as as possible as they can because it's such an unusual um, group. And so, yeah, with with that kind of thing, you got to make your own repertoire pretty much. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's cool to have that, that opportunity, I think. Yeah. Um, 
because they they're some really fantastic players again like it's an honor to be able to work with such fine musicians <laughs> um but so the the idea of electronics came in with um uh, it was there were kind of two elements to it so um i have done very limited work with electronic medium before i've done a couple fixed media pieces and i had uh, a, about a year before writing this piece, I had done my first um, uh, like true electroacoustic piece, uh, um, mm-hmm. which was for clarinet, bass clarinet, and uh, fixed media track. Um, mm-hmm. And so, just getting that taste of uh, working in that medium, I really wanted to push myself to do more of it since. It's something that, um, you know, I haven't had as much experience with as purely acoustic writing. And uh, it just so happened that um, Jacob, the percussionist in Front Porch, um, he had a a, like an actual um, synthesizer that could uh, make sounds and be played on. And then Carolyn, uh, the pianist, had um, a MIDI keyboard that could do the same thing, essentially, if it's plugged into a DAW with, um, you know, uh, patches that you can put in there. Yeah. And so um, we had an initial brainstorming session about what the piece could what could happen with this piece. And uh, similar to with the quartet, you know, one of the first things I asked them was, okay, what are like fun things that you guys can do that you like doing that you haven't done in a piece yet that you'd want to (laughs) do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, that's where some of these these ideas come up. Oh, let's use the synthesizer or, um, you know, there was. the, the convergence of my interest to do more of that type of work with their um, availability of having equipment to facilitate that kind of a piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It also has, um, you, you talk about this a little bit in the notes, but um, the, the soundscapes that you put into the work, so actually just field recordings, um, that you said you you recorded and those particular places were important to the development of this piece or, or or something or or important to the when you were writing the chord progressions that formed the backbone of this piece right okay something like that yeah i think yeah, okay. <laughs> i kind of struggled to explain it like too, very well in the, the note. I did the best I could. Um, so this piece, Remnants, is about um, memories and fragments of memories. And um, there's uh, another connection with the quartet um, that we were just talking about here in that these memories are represented by different chord progressions. And mm-hmm. those chord progressions are, um, you know, usually when I write pieces, I tend to brainstorm and come up with the material for the piece just on its own um Mm -hmm. maybe there will be other references other influences but um for this piece specifically i had had maybe three or four different uh small little things i had just composed on the piano and did didn't do anything with um Mm -hmm. and i did those each at specific points over like a two-year period of time where very different things were kind of going on in my life, um, just general life happenings, you know? So right, like, yeah. um, uh, remembering these types of memories and thinking of these chord progressions, it's like, oh yeah, I was like messing with that chord progression when this type of thing was happening. So um, I decided to kind of 
grab all of these unused bits of uh, melodic um, chordal material and take them, put them into this piece as sort of a, um, uh, a reminiscence, like a chronicling of just the past two or three years over the time, mm-hmm. the various points at which those um, chords were written. So that's, that's one uh, element there. Um, the field recordings. So this piece also, um, in addition to the, uh, the MIDI keyboard, the synthesizer, um, there is fixed media background kind of just noise of um, yeah. when there, um, it, when I was in the process of actually writing this piece. So this is, it, let's say this piece was written and finished in 2019. So let's say it's 2018. I'm currently composing this piece. Um, the past two or three years before that is when I had at various points come up with those little chord progressions. So in uh, quote unquote, the present at this time <laughs> I'm talking about, right? I'm, I'm composing this piece. Now around the University of Michigan campus, like sometimes I would compose in my house, but other times I would, I love just finding random coffee shops, random libraries, just various. I love moving around a lot to, mm-hmm. to compose. And I would bring my Zoom recorder with me and just kind of sit it next to me while I sat there working on my piece and um, just recorded the ambient sound of the space. And um, I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to incorporate, uh, I wanted to kind of blend the idea of the memory of me writing the piece with the the memories that the piece is about. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird to explain. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to like, I, in my, in my notes for, for this interview, I wrote, um, uh, the, those particular moments, um, where you're listening to the soundscape and you have, you know, th- that in, in front of that, you have the musicians playing and they're like engaging in, in those chord progressions in one way or another. And I wrote these moments kind of enter an inward uh, contemplative contemplative space does that when you listen to this does that take you back to those moments when i these ideas kind of came to so it's like you have when you wrote the piece or sorry when you when you came up with the chord progressions and then you when you when you're working with them to write the piece and then you also have the sound of you working on it or presumably like what's going on around you while you're working on it. And then you have further the present now where you're listening to it, (laughs) remembering that time when you were working on it, but also that time when you, uh, when you wrote the progression, but also you probably weren't really paying attention as, as like active listening to what was going around you. So it's this like funhouse yeah. mirrors kind of thing. Everything is like reflexive on it or reflective on each other on itself. Like, yeah. Cre- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, I, I did not come up with all of these ideas at the same time, you know, like I, right. I feel that it, it sounds um, like there, there's, uh, there's cohesiveness to it for sure. You yeah. know, like we, um, when, <laughs> when it can finally be expressed in like a way that is understood, it's like, okay. Um, but 
you know, when I first wrote those chord progressions like four four years ago, um, they were not for anything. They were just yeah. oh, here's a a ten second long thing. Let me just put it in my file and that's that. Um, and so uh, over time, you know, these different layers get added on to um, different points in the compositional process. And so for me, yeah, listening back to the piece is really, really trippy <laughs> because it's like <laughs> there's just these layers of memory that happen. It's like, uh, you know, the, the music evokes certain emotional aspects from those points, those periods of time in my life uh, where I came up with those chords that, you know, I wasn't even intending at that time to be capturing, right? It's just a, yeah. an artifact, um, right. a, like a matter-of-fact thing that, that happened. Um, but then, you know, there's also remembering this. It's like to be, when you compose, everyone has their own compositional process and like the, the everyone has the spaces where they work best or different times of day when they work best or, you know, um, different kind of routines. Mm -hmm. And for this piece, um, the, the particular approach that I had to writing it, um, finding a public space that was relatively quiet. Um, that is what I feel I've captured, uh, in having those field recordings along with the piece. So, um, you, it's like for, for me as the composer, right? I also have the sense of when I'm listening to this piece, the, the feel of the process of making the piece. And that's not, that's not, right. I can't say that for any of the other pieces that I've written ever, you know, because it's like the writing process is, is like an ephemeral thing in a way, even if it takes a year, it's all just stuff that's happening i tried this i took it away you know um i'm going through all these changes but it's all it's coming and going and that's it and then you have you end you have the final piece but you don't have all of the interim time in between there when you're creating the piece right mm -hmm. in terms of memory and i and i feel this piece it captures that what what that felt like when i'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do with these chord progressions from the past yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like as as a composer, you know, listening listening to your own music and um when I'm hearing one of my own pieces in performance, I'm you know, there there are always and I'm sure this happens to you too. There are always like a million things that are going on in your head while the performance is happening. Oh, they they just missed that. Can they get back on? Oh, they got on. You know, or like, wow, they that's the best they've ever done that or or you know, it's like you're so like in the moment that I can't say that I've ever like I've ever gone back to a particular like memory of writing the piece like it might be a memory associated with the piece mm -hmm. you know like oh well uh, this is about my mother's garden or something <laughs> you know so something like that so it's like I remember that but I don't remember writing the piece but in a way with the uh with the soundscapes you're you really have forced yourself back to that to that moment so that that's that's kind of interesting um yeah i actually um i thought of a really uh um interesting comparison there um when as a composer when you listen to your own music you already know everything that's going to happen so yeah. it's it's different listening to your own music than when you listen to anyone else's music 
And what I think this piece does for me is it enables me to listen to the piece as if it's as if I'm listening to someone else's music, because there's that other element in there of the space that at the time I wasn't paying attention to. But when you listen back to the piece, that's a whole other element within it. And it allows me to kind of simultaneously get into my memory while removing myself, disassociating myself. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. There was uh, there was one thing, one instrumental thing that I wanted to ask about mm-hmm. um, the bassoon didgeridoo sound effect. <laughs> I have heard this on uh, trombone before. Yeah, never on bassoon. <laughs> how? <laughs> okay, so um, do uh, are you familiar with how a didgeridoo uh, like works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you kind of you buzz into it, but at the same time you're you're vocalizing um to create the pitch variations. So Right, yeah. Um so what Maddie the bassoonist here um in Front Porch is doing is uh she will take the um the top vocal off. Um uh-huh. or take off the vocal, take basically she dis- disassembles the bassoon and takes okay. <laughs> one half of it. And just blows into it as if it were a didgeridoo. <laughs> so it's the same exact technique, buzzing and humming through okay. uh, a tube. <laughs> and that's that's all that it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so so you have to have you have to give them the time and space to disassemble their instrument, which you do, because there's the, there's that point in the middle before the before the uh, didgeridoo comes in where it's just like um, the the soundscape and the you know like the uh, MIDI mapped sounds and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but <laughs> that's cool, man. Yeah. Is that just a case of like, hey, I've never done this, but I can do this, right? Maybe right for it. Was that it? Yeah, in a sense, you know, it, it, that definitely came out of the initial brainstorming session. Um, it was uh-huh. one of the first things. I, she was like, um, "Oh, you got to hear this. <laughs> we should find some way to put this in a piece." So I was like, "Okay, okay, I like that." Um, that's cool there's a cool visual element that goes along with this as well because when you first hear that sound it happens off stage so you don't actually know what it is you just hear this didgeridoo right. kind yeah. of sound right and um and then when maddie comes back onto the stage her, her instrument is together so you know there's no you don't know how the sound is produced um mm-hmm. at the very end of the piece when that sound comes back um she takes her instrument apart on stage and then produces the sound. So then you see what's actually happening. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a recording of her doing that, that starts playing as she's playing and then it <laughs> blends into the recording and then the recording fades out. So it's like this whole like multiple layers of Mir- mirrors, <laughs> mirrors and mirrors and mirrors and mirrors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Cool. Well, uh, let's take a listen to this. So who are the members of front porch that we're going to hear? All right, so um, front porch, we have um, Benjamin Jackson playing violin. We have um, uh, Maddie Wildman playing bassoon, Carolyn Schubering on piano, and Jacob Rogers on percussion. This is Remnants.
Hi there, it's Andrew Martin-Smith again, with a brief message from our podcast sponsor. Are you interested in learning more about a community of composers that places emphasis on building relationships and forming connections with creatives across multiple disciplines? From social and political commentary to the exploration of scientific algorithms, with the use of electronically generated sounds and or the incorporation of contemporary images, dance, glassblowing, prose, or poetry, the members of the Adjective Composers Collective embrace a variety of musical techniques and styles to create evocative works that have enthralled audiences across the world. Looking to foster or facilitate a new commission or collaboration? feel free to contact us at adjectivenewmusic.com. Let's create something new and impactful together. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Cynthia Van Manen, performed by the Texas State University Wind Symphony with Caroline Beatty conducting. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this brief excerpt of Cynthia Van Manen's Elegy for Our Children. come to the uh question that i always ask the composers and musicians that are on the podcast um how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life yeah yeah um that's a good question i feel that um you know i I mentioned earlier that um i have like always had musical types of memories like it's always been an integral part of my life in one way or another um and Let's when I 
was in my freshman year of high school at in public high school. Um, I had been playing saxophone for uh, maybe five years or something. Um, and I loved it. It was fun. It was a fun thing to do, but I had never thought about careers or anything like that yet. You know, um, I ended up going to the North Carolina School of the Arts, uh, which is a boarding arts. Um, it's actually a college and it also has a high school program, Mm -hmm. um, that has, uh, it's a boarding program. So, um, I ended up going there for my last three years of high school. And that experience changed my life entirely because that being in that environment where everyone attending the school was attending for a specific art that they were very passionate about. And so existing in that community of artists made me start to think, hey, maybe this could be a thing I actually do for real. Um, You know, and that's what inspired me to apply um, to Indiana University to study saxophone performance, which is what I initially went in um, as just a saxophone performance major. And then I took a, an elective composition course <laughs> for fun. I was like, oh, this will be a fun extra credit. That looks like something cool to do. Um, and that was like a life-changing experience because that was that whole term was the first time I went through the whole process of conceiving of an idea musical ideas, figuring out how to notate them down, um, how to make them uh, uh, readable, legible for another performer to interpret, then giving the music to performers, then having them learn it and perform it. And like just the, the, the fulfillment that comes from hearing something that couldn't exist without you. Like this is literally mm-hmm. you created that from scratch and of course other people need to interpret it but the, the idea itself you know for me i found that much more personally fulfilling than just performing um yeah. and i'll always love performing but uh it was a- after taking that course i knew i had to do composition so i went yeah. on and did a master's and a doctorate um in that and so yeah <laughs> Doing a lot little of did you, Little did you know, an elective. <laughs> well, that'll change your life. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. So before we go, Corey, can you tell everyone uh, where they can find more of your music, uh, where they can find you on like uh, your your website or socials or, or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend to keep it pretty simple. Um, just <laughs> CoreyDundee.com. <laughs> That's my personal website. It has... Um, all the pieces I've written up there and actually also has some original photography that I've used as the backgrounds and things like that. Um, it's a, a hobby that I, I have. Um, and then um, my SoundCloud again is just soundcloud.com slash Corey Dundee. Um, and I highly recommend checking out more of Canary Quartet um, quartet that I play in. These guys are fantastic. Um, and uh, Canary is spelled K-E-N-A-R-I. So that's just canariquartet.com. We've also got Instagram, YouTube, um, and we've got a Facebook page. So we're pretty, pretty easily findable all around. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.